Good morning. For those who don't know me, my name is Abhishek Babu, and I'm a pastoral resident here at Central under the Resound Project. And it's a privilege to open God's Word in front of you all this morning. If you've been visiting Central for the past few weeks at least, you would have noticed that we are in the Advent season. We are, we've been looking into uh, our beloved Christmas carols that declare the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jason has been encouraging us to sing the carols with passion. Why? Because when we sing the carols, we proclaim the gospel in unison, right? Today we will um, look into uh, the carol, Once in Royal David City. Now, perhaps this is probably the least known carol in the U.S. at least, but it's well known in the U.K. Uh, this carol, or hymn, was written by Cecil Alexander and in 1848, and she's from Ireland. Interestingly, this was part of a hymn book called Hymns for Little Children, structured according to the Apostles' Creed. Now, this hymn gained global popularity as the processional hymn of the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols at the historic King's College Chapel in Cambridge, UK. Now, if you watched the Nine Lessons and Carols live, uh, you would have noticed that the first verse is sung by a boy chorister who leads the procession, followed by the rest of the choir and the congregation. Now, needless to say, this was considered a special privilege to be chosen or selected as a boy chorister. Now, you might be interested to know that we have uh, a celebrity here in our midst who once was a boy chorister. So, like, I see him right there. We have our very own Andrew Smith, who, <laughs> who had the distinct privilege of being this boy chorister all the way in um, Belfast, Ireland, when he was 12 years old. I've seen the picture. This is true story. And you can ask for his autograph later. <laughs> You know, as we, as we sang this hymn, you would have noticed the themes of hope, of promise, of longing to know and to be known by the Savior. You know, this hymn, once in Royal David City, gloriously captures uh, Jesus' life, his incarnation, and his exaltation. Now, that brings us to our passage for this morning. This morning, we will look at Philippians 2 a very well-known passage. You know, in this passage, Paul captures the imagination of his readers by pointing them to Jesus, his pre-existence, his incarnation, his humiliation, his suffering, and his death on the cross, and most importantly, his exaltation. So if you're willing, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking from verses 5 through 11. You'll find this passage printed on your bulletin on page 10, this passage can also be found on page 980 and 981 of the Pew Bible. Now hear God's word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, uh, this passage, particular section, is commonly known as an ancient Christian hymn, right? Here, Paul offers us a glimpse into the very heart of Jesus. You know, the Gospels capture who Jesus was and what he has done. But this passage is unique in that he, you, here we get a glimpse into who Jesus is, what his heart is like. This passage tells us about the inner passion of Jesus, what Paul calls the mind of Christ. Paul reveals the dynamics of Jesus' innermost mind or his heart. Now, why does he do that? So that we can know Jesus for who he is and imitate him for what he has accomplished for us, which is, according to Paul, the gospel unity and humility in seeking God's glory and highest good of others. We will look into some of the questions as we take a deep dive into this hymn. What is the heart of Christ like? What motivated Jesus to suffer and die for our sake? What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Like the Christmas carol, Paul here tells us the story of Jesus, his pre-existence, the Jesus who, the sovereign God who took on flesh as the humble servant, Jesus, the suffering God who plunged to the depths of sorrow and death to seek and save the lost and the exalted Savior who is with us in our suffering right now and who has promised to establish justice and peace, wiping all our tears away. So let's look at Jesus, the sovereign God, the suffering servant, and the exalted Savior. First, Jesus, the sovereign God. This carol, like many other Christmas carols, presents Jesus as the sovereign God in his pre-incarnate state. Notice the words, he came down to earth from heaven who is God and Lord of all. You see, in order to understand the work of Jesus as the Messiah, it is vital for us to uh, see Jesus as the sovereign God who took on flesh and who came down to earth. We also see Paul emphasizing that precise point here. We see Paul emphasizing the divinity of Jesus in this passage. Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi from a prison in Rome. This letter, if you've read this before, is filled with joy and thankfulness. Paul, like a father, encourages these young Gentile believers to order their lives according to the gospel, a life worthy of the gospel. He appeals to these believers to complete his joy, not, not for praying for his deliverance from prison, but by what? But by completing his joy through gospel unity and Christ-like humility. Friends, now what's important for us to notice is that Paul does not offer a set of commands or self-help techniques for these believers. Rather, we see Paul presenting Jesus as their supreme model who has suffered for their sake, humbling himself to the death on the cross. Why? To rescue them from this tyranny of sin and death. 
Paul encourages them to have the mind of Christ, which is already theirs by virtue of their union with Christ. Now that brings us to a question. What does Paul mean by the mind of Christ? Notice verse 6. According to Paul, to have the mind of Christ is to begin to know who Jesus is. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is in the very form and substance of God. Right? This is the historic Christian proclamation, creed, as we call it. Biblical scholar Alec Motier puts it this way. Jesus possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God himself. Right? This is who Jesus is. Notice verse 6 again. Now, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this is where we get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. This is where we enter the mind of Christ. Notice Jesus' attitude towards what is eternally his own, his divine nature. He does not take advantage of his deity. Now, why does Paul specifically mention this here? To give you a context, Paul is writing uh, this letter to the Philippian believers who are predominantly Gentile Christians. <clears throat> they lived in a culture where they worshipped kings and rulers. Right? Many commentators talked about how in Paul's day, these Philippian believers lived in a culture where Augustus and his family were worshipped as divine beings. Why? Because the people in that culture believed that once these rulers died, they attained the status of gods. Right? Now, this interestingly reminds me of my country, India, where it seems like there are as many godmen as there are gods. You know, there are these charismatic men and women who claim to be the incarnation of various gods and goddesses. Right? They outrightly claim equality with God, unabashedly, even though everything about them is essentially human. Now, what's ironic is that some of these famous godmen and women are actually infamous for their various moral and sexual failures. Some of them are in prison. Some of them are you know, uh, known for their moral failures, scandals, and greed. Now, that would make us think, maybe, well, this whole God complex, this phenomenon of God complex is probably limited to ancient Greco-Roman culture, or perhaps to Eastern culture. Not here, right? Certainly not. Do we not see this in our own liberated postmodern culture around us? You see, underneath every expression of individual autonomy and utter disregard for all forms of authority lies the, 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 the whole feeling of gaining equality with God. It's clenching your fist against God and saying, not your will, but my will be done. All of us have this God complex, if you're honest with ourselves. Now, if you think about it, we can trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Now, God created Adam and Eve in his image. Now, God created Adam and Eve. Why? And he gave them the creational mandate to say, be fruitful and to multiply. Their entire life was supposed to be dedicated to, to spread the glory of God's presence to wherever they would go, to all corners of the earth. But then in Genesis 3, we learn that the first Adam's sinful disobedience and pride 
leads us to the, what the Bible calls the fall. Adam's sin and disobedience has ruptured our relationship with God. The shalom of Eden is replaced by the curse of the fall. Now, the judgment of this curse is inflicted through what the Bible calls suffering. It comes in various forms. There's spiritual alienation. There's conflict. There's diseases. There's death. There's decay. There's divorce. All, of, all forms of suffering can be traced to the fall, where men clench their fist against God and said, not your will, but my will be done. Now the question is, how does God redeem this fallen humanity? The answer is simple. Through his son Jesus, the second Adam. While the first Adam, who wasn't God, wanted to be like God, wanted to become God, Jesus, the second Adam, who is God, and who alone could claim equality with God, does not take advantage to seek his own glory. He voluntarily submits himself to seek the will of the Father, which is what? The redemption of fallen humanity. Now, this is where we should ask ourselves this question. So what does this all mean for us? What does this point teach us about the mind of Christ? Two things. Firstly, to have the mind of Christ is to acknowledge and to submit to Jesus as the sovereign Lord. To have the mind of Christ is to acknowledge our finitude, our creatureliness, to, and to accept responsibility for our actions as the created beings. The overarching theme of the Bible is this. God is sovereign and we are responsible for our actions and the results of our actions. The Bible depicts history as 100% under God's will, his providential rule and purposeful direction. Yet, the same human beings are 100% responsible for their behavior. I mean, if you're honest with ourselves, it's hard for us to grasp, right? It's hard for us to grapple with God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Why is that? Because we implicitly believe that our lives are determined by this notion of fate or karma. If you do good things, we should get good things in return. If you do bad things, it's no surprise if you get bad things in return. But if you think about it, life is not that simple, isn't it? There is nothing in life that is so simple. You know, you suffer for no mistake of yours. Perhaps you are today or in the past. Not only that, you inflict suffering. We inflict suffering on others for no mistakes of theirs. Most of the times, the ones who suffer under our wrath are the ones who love us deeply. Babies die in infancy. You bury your loved ones. You get cancer. Friends, if you are honest with ourselves, we will, we will confess that we need a God, a sovereign God who is sovereign all over all our circumstances of our lives, providentially shaping in spite and even through our mistakes. We need a savior to hold and to be held. Now we see a greatest example of this compatibility of 
God's sovereignty and human responsibility in the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. He says to his brothers, what you did for evil, what you meant for evil, God meant the very thing for good, right? Now, secondly, if you're not a Christian, this is important, or if you're exploring Christianity, to have the mind of Christ is to accept him as God who has taken on flesh. You see, Jesus is not merely a divine being. Jesus is not God-like or godly. He's not a teacher. He's just not the teacher of the law. He is the logos, or the word of God, through him, by him, and for him, all things were created. Now, if you're not a Christian, this is indeed the good news. Because Jesus is the answer to your deepest longing. Jesus is the answer to our deepest longing to be known and to be loved. You see, the sovereign God, according to the Bible, is also the suffering God. Jesus is the Lord of history, no doubt, but he's also the suffering servant who entered that history to redeem sinners. Jesus is no doubt the king of kings, yet he's the one born in a lowly manger, the one who had no place to call home. He's the king who has come down, not to a throne, but to a cross to die. Now what motivated this Jesus, this sovereign God, to come down to earth as a suffering God? How did he accomplish our salvation? We'll find out in our second point, the suffering servant. Now, if you notice the hymn, Cecil Alexander poignantly captures the humility and suffering of Jesus. She writes, And his shelter was a stable, and his cradle was a stall. With the poor, the scorned, the lowly, lived on earth our Savior holy. He was little, he was weak, he was helpless. Tears and smiles like us he knew, and he feeleth for our sadness. Similarly, in verses 7 and 8 in this passage, Paul describes the humiliation and suffering of Christ or Jesus in two stages. First, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And secondly, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, every major world religion, right, along with modern secular worldview, offers reason and explanation for suffering. It offers or prescribes human response to suffering and the resolution to minimize or to eradicate suffering once and for all. For instance, in moralistic religions like Hinduism from India, uh, the cause for suffering is what? Bad karma. And the human response to suffering is good karma, and the solution or the resolution is moksha or eternal bliss. In Buddhism, the suffering is considered an illusion, right? And the solution or the response is to detach yourself from all the desires that you have, right? And the solution or the resolution is what? Nirvana or enlightenment. Now, what about our secular view? How do we view suffering? We view suffering as an accident, as an interruption. This, we are not meant to suffer or to inflict suffering. Now, the secular view offers self-help techniques to counteract suffering in order to work towards what? The good life 
or a better society. Now, if you notice what is common among all these worldviews, including our own secular worldview, is that suffering, according to all these worldviews, is something to be conquered, is something to be neutralized, is something to be minimized in order to experience what? The good life. Also, salvation or the enlightenment or the good life, whatever you call it, is contingent on your effort, on my effort, on human effort. However, in a sheer contrast, suffering is at the very heart of Christian faith. What makes Christian faith unique is the fact that God, who is sovereign over suffering, made himself vulnerable by entering into the world of suffering. The other side of the sovereignty of God is the suffering of God himself. This is paradoxical, like many things in the Bible. This apparently paradoxical statement is crucial in grasping the Christian understanding of suffering. Now, you see throughout the Bible, for instance, prophet Isaiah mentions uh, the Messiah or the coming Messiah, who is Jesus, as the suffering servant who was wounded and crushed for our sin by God himself. This Messiah is also called the man of sorrows who was despised and rejected by his own people. Now, Jesus, as the Messiah, fulfills this prophecy by taking on the form of a servant. He perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf, yet he was crushed. It was the will of God to crush this suffering servant. As a man of sorrows, we see Jesus was filled with grief. We see him weeping with Mary before he raised Lazarus from the tomb. We see him weeping over the people of Jerusalem for their hard-heartedness. We see him sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. But ultimately, we see the apex of Jesus' perfect obedience and infinite grief on the cross itself, where he carries our sin, where he takes upon himself our shame, and where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the cross of Christ declares that the sovereign God entered into history as the suffering God. The gruesome reality of the cross provides us a compelling reason that God is not a cold or indifferent deity who doesn't care for our suffering, but it also shows us that suffering is real, so real that God himself entered into history to take on suffering. That brings us to an important question once again. What does it mean for us today to have the mind of Christ, the suffering servant? Firstly, to have the mind of Christ, the suffering servant, is to understand that suffering is at the heart of Christianity. Our sanctification happens in the wilderness of life. This means that Christian life is not about conquering suffering. It's not about Uh, using techniques to minimize suffering or to detach oneself from suffering, but it is to trust God as you suffer, as you endure suffering, to know that the God who has come down is a God who is also with us today and that he has promised to return. It is to suffer, endure suffering with hope and patience, knowing that it glorifies God and it makes us more Christ-like. 
Secondly, to have the mind of Christ is to know that suffering is real. And it's not an illusion. It is to acknowledge that suffering is the enemy of God. And Jesus has come down to suffer to end all suffering. To have the mind of Christ is to lament over our suffering. You see, only Christianity offers an avenue for the sufferers to lament, to bring their suffering to God as it is. Not to sugarcoat it. Not to wash yourself up in the, in the river before you enter into the sanctuary of God. Not to go to a pilgrimage every year to, to offer sacrifice before you enter into the presence of God. You can, as a Christian, come to God and bring your own suffering, bring your own lament. Listen to the words of Tim Keller on suffering. Yes, we do not know the reason why God allows evil and suffering to continue or why it is so random. But now at least we know what the reason is not. It cannot be that he doesn't love us. It cannot be that he does not care. He's so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge into the greatest depths of suffering himself. He understands us. He's been there. And he assures us that he has a plan to eventually wipe away every tear. Friends, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, we all have one thing in common. We all suffer, don't we? Perhaps you are going through one right now. We all grieve. We are grieving. And we all are in pain. You see, you and I need a savior to hold on to, to be held by. You and I need a Savior who plunges into the depths of suffering to offer us what? Peace in our present suffering and hope and assurance that one day he will make all things new, that he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. We all need a Savior. And the hope of Christmas, the hope of Advent, is that this Savior has come. Now that leads us to a final question. What should be the posture of our heart as we await this Savior again, as we await the day when he comes back, as he has promised. That brings us to our final point, the exalted Savior. Notice how both the hymns end with the exaltation and the hope of second coming of Jesus. Although it is true that suffering is the very heart of Christian faith, it does not glorify suffering. Hear me say this clearly. Suffering is at the very heart of Christian faith. In fact, we have a God as a model who suffered for us, but yet it does not glorify suffering. We are not called to grin and bear and pretend that we are okay while we are suffering. Suffering is not the chief end of Christian faith. There are kids here, they might know the Westminster Shorter Catechism question number one. What is the chief end of our life? What is the chief end of our faith? The chief end of our faith is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is the chief end of Christian faith. This is the hope of Christianity, right? You see, every religion, every religion, including our modern secular worldview, can only offer salvation as a consolation based on your merit. That's the only thing that can offer. Salvation as a consolation based on your merit. Perhaps that might end your suffering. But only Christianity offers salvation, not just as a consolation, 
which is what? That you are saved by grace through faith. But most importantly, it offers salvation and restoration. That God in Jesus restores the fallen humanity. Right? As sojourners walking through the wilderness of life, this is our hope. We as Christians eagerly anticipate the day when everything sad will come untrue. When Jesus, our exalted Savior, will finally wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's exactly what's happening in verses 9 and 11. We see God the Father being glorified in Jesus. And we in turn see God the Father glorifying Jesus as the Lord of Lords. In his first coming, Jesus arrived in weakness, in humility. However, we anticipate Jesus to return in power and glory in his second coming. This is the Christian hope. Now what does it mean for us to have the mind of Christ as we await the second coming of this Jesus who is called the Lord of Lords? Two things. First and foremost, it means that we are called to take Jesus and the claims that he makes in our lives seriously. It means to know this Jesus and to grow in our knowledge of his love, as Paul prays for pretty much all the churches that he writes to. That you know the knowledge of this God, of this Jesus. This is the first and foremost thing. It, is, it means for us to, as we await for this Savior. Now, God has not randomly suggested us to, okay, know Jesus through nature by, by going to the mountains. No, he has given us the word of God. He has given what the Bible says, the means of grace for our benefit. Now, what are the means of grace? Firstly, the word of God, Bible. Secondly, the communion with God, which is what? Prayer. And thirdly, the community of God, which is this, the church. You know, some of you, I know that some of you, you you've been reading Bible regularly, more regularly than I have been. But perhaps if you're not, interestingly, we are on the last day of the year where we make resolutions, don't we? How about we make this resolution? How about we pick up the Bible pick up a reading plan, we have so, much, so many of them on the internet, and read through the Bible. How about we make a commitment of just reading through the Bible, right? How about, how about we pick this passage and memorize it, if that is what you love doing? Or, or if you're interested in knowing the claims of Jesus, if you're not a Christian today, but yet you're suffering, and you want to know who this Jesus is, Pick up the Bible, go to the Gospel of John, read through it, ask questions of this Jesus. Lament, question, question who he is, yet also be open for, for what his heart is for you. But if you have more questions, please come and talk to Chris or Andrew or me or Alan or Twombo. Also, in scriptures, we have this unique opportunity to bring ourselves as we are to God, right? To lament, to cry, to weep as we suffer in prayer. Let's take advantage of that. Let's take advantage of that. We have our Wednesday 
evening prayers, prayer and praise services here regularly. Please look at the website to find out when that's happening, and please visit us here. If you're not plugged into our community groups, community groups are the wonderful place where people gather together to experience the transformation of the gospel and to pray with and for one another. Please plug into a community group. Make it a habit to spend time in prayer. And thirdly, if you're not part of a church community, find one. If you're visiting us, go back to your city, go back to your town, look for a gospel-centered church. Find a community. You see, you can only experience the mind of Christ as the member of the body of Christ. Right? How about this? How about we make Paul's appeal our New Year's resolution? Have this mind of Christ, the sovereign God who took on flesh as the humble servant, the suffering God who plunged to the depths of sorrow to seek and save the lost, and the exalted Savior who is with us in our suffering in present, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us, but he was also promised to establish justice and peace by wiping away all our tears. Happy New Year. Let me pray for us. Father, what a joy it is to worship you this last day of the year. Yes, Lord, the calendar may change, the days may change, but in Jesus we have the Savior who is unchanging, the one who was plunged to the depths of sin and sorrow to save our souls. Lord, I pray that even as we consider the claims of Jesus, even as we explore the mind of Christ, would you open our hearts and show us Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.